You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. You ever wonder how we got here? And I don't mean like big question how we got here, but how we got to this place where in 2021, billions of women are still in the dark about menopause, that we are still kind of ashamed to talk about it, though thankfully that's changing, but we're still fighting for research and still so many questions and people are in menopause. We don't even know we're in menopause. And should we go on hormone therapy? All of that? How did, how are we still here? Well, my guest this week, Eleanor Cleghorn, has written a book on exactly how we've gotten here. It's called Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. I highly recommend this book. It is a jaw-dropping look at how Western medicine has treated and more importantly, mistreated women, and of course, menopausal women throughout history. We are still in this messed up place because the whole foundation of Western medicine was built on a messed up patriarchal foundation that has treated women really, really poorly. And how some women, namely Black women, have been mistreated far worse. We talk about All of that, and importantly, just because I don't want to fire everybody up and leave you with no place to go, what we can all do about it right now to advocate for ourselves in the present and make the future better. I hope you all love this conversation as much as I did. Her book is out June 8th, but you can pre-order it now. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. Again, highly recommend this one. Okay, before we get to it, little weekly reminder Come and join us on our social media channels. You can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook channel where you can come on in and join our conversations, ask anything you want. It's a great, great supportive group of about 5,000 women and growing. Love it. And if you want a deep dive into all things active menopausal living, We've got the Feisty Menopause Membership, where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. And of course, I have that email. You guys have been sending me uh, guest suggestions and notes, and it's really been great. It's been great to hear from people. So if you want to drop me a line, I am at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. Finally, As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the support you have shown this show. We are nearing 300 reviews, most of them five stars, and so many wonderful ratings and reviews. I can't thank you enough. It really helps the show grow. It helps other people find us. So keep hitting those stars and hearts. I love it. Thanks so much. Okay, let's have a quick word from our generous and awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, 
know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play, Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa Cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash Feisty menopause, I can tell you, it works. So we'll just get right into it. The, the book, sure, was, yeah. The book was amazing and amazingly infuriating. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, it's it's funny, like. I took women's studies a million years ago in college. And I, I honestly used to kind of roll my eyes when the women in the class would talk about the patriarchy. And now I'm just like, I was so dumb. <laughs> I was so, I'm so dumb. But anyway, it's good. It's good when you, when you find yourself on the right path, no matter how old you are. Anyway, um, the book was born, it seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, out of your own journey 
through the medical system while searching for a diagnosis of a, of a pretty unpredictable disease. Can you talk a little bit about that and what stands out from that experience that inspired you to write this? Yeah, so I was diagnosed in 2010 when I was 30 with a disease called systemic lupus erythematosus or lupus as it's more commonly known, um, which is the most common form of an autoimmune disease called lupus. And it affects all of your body in the sort of soft tissue. So more or less, it can affect anywhere apart from your bones. So okay. it can affect your organs, your tissues, um, the functionality of your body in different ways. And it's very diverse and quite, un as you say, unpredictable disease. So I was diagnosed in 2010 after a difficult and complex pregnancy where my son had a heart condition that was... Um, causing his heart to beat very slowly while I was pregnant with him. And one of the only known causes of this rare um, illness, which is called congenital heart block, is carrying an antibody that where the mother's immune system actually attacks the fetal heart. Wow. So usually the placenta is sort of immune privileged. So it protects the baby. Your baby's protected from your immune system. But in my case, he wasn't. So I was tested for, um, given lots of blood work, given lots of immunological blood work that is not routine, especially not in the UK under the NHS. And it turned out that I did carry an antibody that, that produced this reaction in the fetal heart. So it looked, and this antibody is related to lupus. Now at that point, my clinicians, my consultants were really focused on saving my baby's life. Mm -hmm. So what was happening with me kind of slipped between the cracks. And although I knew I had this antibody, nobody explained what it meant. The doctors didn't suggest this meant that I was actually ill as well. Mm -hmm. After my baby was born, he was about just about nine weeks old. I got started to develop really awful pain in my back and at first I just put it down to feeding carrying a newborn all day not sleeping so well and it got worse and worse and I went to a chiropractor who kind of did some manipulations on my back and actually it turned out that I had increasing amounts of fluid was filling the pericardium around my the, around my heart muscle so I was rushed to hospital with a really high heart rate and breathing problems and it turned out that I had this heart condition as well and this was mysterious they didn't the doctors didn't look at the medical my medical records from my pregnancy and relate my baby's illness to what was happening with me the, mm -hmm. the puzzle pieces were never fixed together so I spent about 10 days in hospital and I had ultrasounds cardiac ultrasounds lots of blood work lots of tests and different things were considered from pneumonia to a postpartum infection. And then I was seen by a rheumatologist who happened to be visiting the hospital on that day, who looked at my bloods and said, I think this is autoimmune. And then did some detective work and came up with this. He said, look, I think near as damn it, his words were, you've got, you've got this systemic lupus and you'll get referred and you'll get referred to specialist clinic and you'll be treated. So they think that my immune system after the baby was born just sort of went haywire and attacked my heart. After having a the baby's heart, it then turned its attentions to my heart. 
Um, so, so yeah, so since 2010, I've just learned to live with it. And at first it was complete mystery to me. I wasn't given, I had excellent care, but I wasn't given a particular sort of roadmap for how I should manage this disease because it is so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And I have a background as a historian and that's when I started just doing my own research and thinking, well, why can't I be told any answers? Why am I not being given any explanations for this? So I just started becoming this sort of armchair expert in the history of lupus. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that it had been a disease that had been known to be systemic since the 19th century, that it was known to affect mainly younger women, so sort of younger reproductive aged women. And I thought, well, why? Why are we still in this state now where we have almost as few answers in (laughs) the 21st century as we had in the 19th? It's a great question. It's a great question. Yeah. And that was sort of the genesis of the book, really. That was the genesis of it, this question of why, like, why have we progressed so extensively clinically but yet in some of the attitudes and some of the blind spots really not at all so Mm -hmm. yeah I think that was the real genesis the sort of real desire to find out why like ask why by situating myself within this more complicated history and those blind spots appear larger on the um, women's side of the lens (laughs) right they certainly do they really do um wow so you know i i i was wondering like how much the book is very in-depth and i was wondering how much did she know when she went into this book and um so it sounds like you sort of went in just almost naive is is, is that correct and and then just discovered like all this and in your own process of of really going deep as a historian i by the time i came to write the book itself i knew i knew much more about what I was getting into than in the earlier process when I was sort of trying to navigate this material and also my own experience now as a person with a chronic disease. But I still think that the the book really, I I really didn't understand the extent of it until I just started sort of opening up each sort of era of medicine, each case study, each disease, and then really, um, what, was the, what was the real surprise for me was just how much these blind spots and these misunderstandings and these kind of um, roadblocks are because of really entrenched social stereotypes and cultural ideas about who women are and how they should live and how they should be. So these sort of tropes, really kind of limiting tropes about womanhood, womanhood and femininity and the extent to which those had influenced medical ideas, and also the extent to which medicine had sort of reinforced and created some of those ideas, that was the real surprise. So in short, like how much of a social history it really is. And in, in short, those those tropes are um, seem very tightly focused on women as wombs. Is, is that yes. fair to say? Yes, absolutely, very much. Very much. From the very beginning of what we would describe as our sort of Western mainstream medical establishment, the kind of medicine that 
is represented in our hospitals in the UK and the US from the very beginning in ancient Greece with the Hippocratic authors who, from where we get our Hippocratic oath that doctors swear. Um, women really were, the pathologies of the female body really centered around their wombs and specifically around the reproductive function of the womb or the reproductive purpose of the womb. And I think because there was very little else, there were very few parameters with which to sort of understand what a body was. So it, the understanding of human bodies came from the understanding of what human bodies were in the world and women were reproductive vessels. Yeah. So yes. their and, understanding of their illnesses sort of um, evolved or sort of developed from that premise. I, I don't want to go happening. down this rabbit hole. Yeah, I feel of like, course. No, no, no. My uh, the rabbit hole I'm about to open. Okay, okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but because um, I like, I mean, we're going to go into where what you're going. But but it, it what strikes me is how, you know, what you're talking about. You know, yes, of course, there was a limited understanding. They weren't dissecting bodies. You talk about that until they do start. And I didn't know that my uterus could suffocate me and turn me into a witch and all that. But right. it, <laughs> um, but but it, what's what's really striking to me is that in past, you know, before that time, that that mystical power, if you want to call it that, that reproductive whatever, was revered and made us something special, as opposed to making us this thing that maybe we got to lock up or you know. I mean, it's that's what I was like. Well, what's that about? Yeah. yeah, that's another podcast, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. You're right there because there's this real paradox. So on the one hand, you know, it's what, as you say, you know, we are revered for having this kind of precious procreative power, this sort of almost mystical divine thing, you know, the key to life and everything. And then it's the very thing that pathologizes us and right. makes us discriminated against and makes us kind of dependent and at the mercy of our bodies and something beyond our control. So yeah, this, this sort of paradox is really, it, it's really frustrating and it's present, I think all the way through the history of medicine. It's like this thing that pregnancy in, at least in the sort of ancient um, medical tracts and sort of going into the middle ages, pregnancy really was seen as the healthiest state for a woman's body to be in. But then at the same time, being reproductive as a whole thing was seen as the source of all of women's illnesses and pathologies. So it's just this kind of horrible carousel of sort of cure and, cure and cause. So that's a good way to put it. And, mm. and you come to use the term androcentric medicine then in the book. And can you explain mm. that term a little bit? Yeah, so androcentric is means centered around male knowledge, male perspectives and male sets of judgments. And it was a term that I had seen a couple of times in some writings and didn't really know the genesis of or the origin of. And it was a term that was popularized by a writer called Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who was a feminist, a lecturer and activist in the 19th and early 20th century. And famously, she was the author of The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a short story written in 1892 that's a real, you know, really quite a damning critique of medical sexism at the time. So Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote a book called A Man's World in which she 
uses this term androcentric that was actually, I think, originated by a male scholar before her. But she uses it in the context that I use it, which is that androcentrism is the way that culture, the way that society is shaped. It's shaped according to male expectations, male judgments, male achievements. And when it's used in to think about medical sexism, it doesn't just apply to, or it's, sorry, it doesn't just encompass the male body being the standard in, for example, clinical research and drug testing. It also means that male knowledge is privileged over anything else. So an androcentric male, set of male knowledge is knowledge that has been maybe historically dominated by men, um, historically dominated by opinions biased towards male objectivity, towards um, the very sort of strict gender binaries. You know, so it's, it's about the privileging of certain types of knowledge as well as it is about representation actually in the field of kind of clinical practice and research. Right, right. Which brings us to menopause. <laughs> you know, so, um, which is, you know, if you, given that foundation that you, you've just created and, and the lens through which medicine has looked at, at women and regarded women, it, menopause becomes extraordinarily problematic, mm-hmm. right? Um, yes. Because again, you know, quote unquote, mysterious things are happening and we're not reproductively useful anymore. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot of that still permeates, but it's funny at one point in the book, you, you say pernicious perceptions of aging women and hackneyed stereotypes about menopause, making women mad, sad, and even dangerous are woven into the culture of stigmatization and trivialization that still circulates around menopause. And, you know, I have to say that I am very mad, sad, and dangerous. <laughs> so I wonder, like, you know, how much of these stereotypes have a kernel of truth simply because how terribly we've been treated for millennial? I think that's such, such a great question. I love that question. Um, I think there might be a kind, there is a kernel of truth there. And I think there's two things happening. There's both a sense of anger and enragement about being about feeling that you are being told you're not useful that you're not productive that you're not generative that this is the end of of something that you're going to be invisible and at the same time internalizing a sort of sense of shame and stigma around what is happening to your body and your sense of self in something that otherwise should be you know, another stage that's exciting and important and valuable and should be celebrated. But I think, yeah, the sort of mad, sad and bad stereotypes that have really haunted kind of cultural perceptions of menopause. And they've been really been reinforced by the progression of medical ideas about menopause from like, especially in the 19th century, but, you know, beforehand with the sort of more kind of as you said earlier, the witchier ideas about what a menopausal woman is. But well, even which is referenced kind of in your book an awful lot, <laughs> like 70 yeah. references. Yeah, it is. I mean, the yeah, the, the witch stereotype, I mean, the idea that there's some kind of 
the, the womb being productive, being reproductive, keeps women sane. And women's sanity being associated with performing the social duty of reproduction is really fascinating to me that this is written in. Like there's a stability, there's this idea of kind of placid stability around a woman who is regularly having babies, right? regularly reproducing. And then as mm. soon as that anchor is gone, she's unpredictable. She's not understood. She's something we don't know what to do with that. And it's so, what's so infuriating is that it's so inscribed into the progression of medical ideas, right? So we inherit this legacy now. We inherit this kind of lexicon of words about deficiency and lack and uselessness. You know, they're embedded, even if it's not literally what's being said, even if no doctor now is literally saying, you are a witch and you should go, you know, live in a cupboard and not bother anyone. <laughs> even though that's not being said, there's something there, right? There's a residue there, in, even if it's just in the language that's used, or even just in maybe the paternalistic attitude towards how women should, should manage um, any kind of symptoms they might get through perimenopause, through menopause, you know? There's so much to dig into there. Yeah, um, you know, so much. Like one of the things that I experienced and I heard about that I it kind of it really blindsided me because I, I never expected it or saw it coming was that odd feeling of invisibility of like it's just very unsettling and it's very strange and you know when when you when you frame it in this large vast historical way you know about what you're saying about women like that they're you know most useful and 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 happy like everything you know when they're in their reproductive state it makes a lot of sense that those echoes are still carrying through today you know even though we're living easily almost half our lives past that point at the right now you know like that's enormous it's, it's a huge shift um but even the language i mean you mentioned this deficiency that language is still here and if you go on and it makes uh, amanda thebe who wrote menopocalypse actually just got a time out on instagram or facebook for like calling somebody out but but, you know, people are using this term like, oh, you're deficient. You know, they're, they're using those terms. And, they're, and then they're coming up with like crazy cocktails or, you know, oh, your fallopian tubes are just blocked or, oh, my God, you got toxins in your fallopian tubes that are making you deficient. And you just need this fast. Oh, my Lord. Like, we're still the product. We're still I don't it might even get worse now that there are so many women in this space with some money in their pockets. I'm not I'm not kidding. I think that's really fascinating. It's there's so much around the language. And I, I was thinking earlier about the sort of the fear around HRT or menopausal in, in the States, you call it menopausal hormone therapy. We call it HRT in the UK. But the fear that was sort of in, incited around um, HRT after the uh, Women's Health Initiative study results um, were published in 2003. And then in the UK, we had a really similar study called the Million, the Million Women's Study. Women study. Yeah. yeah. And both of those studies, I mean, the Women's Health Initiative was, was clinical trials, clinical research, and the Million Women's Study was, was qualitative with surveys. But both of them incited this really, this real fear around the, especially around the carcinogenic risks of HRT, that then I think in both the US and the UK just blew up in press. Mm -hmm. It has a chilling effect to this day. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, even doctors I interview who have not kept up with it, and many have not kept up with it because menopause is still a footnote in in medical school. Um, You know, they still just sort of harken back to that because it was landmark, you know, at the time. But that was 20 years ago. And it's very... The drugs have changed. The <laughs> under, like all of it has changed. And we're still just going, oh no, it's going to cause cancer yeah. and it's going to do that. And, and it's really, it's amazing how some things like that can become so firmly entrenched mm-hmm. that, yeah. and it's still really paternalistic in my opinion. So much like the idea that women have to be told what to do, you know, they have to be told these risks, they have to be told they can't rather than the emphasis that, that it should be on informed choice and knowledge about you know the different kinds of doses the different kinds of drugs the different kinds of ways and durations of taking different things you know the informed choices just seems to escape just to, to be not there at all the idea of informed choice and being empowered to make that choice being empowered through knowledge rather than a blanket scare like always you know no we must protect you from you know, some sort of perceived risk. And, you know, the perception of risk is really relative depending on what something is. I mean, we have, there were, there were shown to be some biases when they're written into both of those studies. So for example, in the, mil- I know more about the Million Women study, but it was shown that a lot of the participants were already taking HRT before the study began and would have been dosed higher with estrogen for longer. Also, there was quite a high percentage of women in those age groups smoking. You know, there were different- Especially in that time, oh my God, everybody Totally, yeah, yeah. Because it was like people recruited who were born after 1935. So, you know, there were all these variables. It was also a very, very white um, trial too. I think 96% of the um, women in the Million Women study were, were white. So they were not a healthy kind of... population necessarily. No, no, <laughs> really not. Yeah. <laughs> really not. Mad, bad, and sad. Um, <laughs> and self-medicating accordingly, maybe. But no, I mean yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, so but the idea that you know we we can't we've kind of become both useless and invisible and sort of infants again. Like we need to be kind of our hands need to be held through this sort of, we've become kind of wholly dependent and therefore need to be, you know, addressed in this sort of paternalistic way or kind of, as you were saying earlier, sort of ushered towards some, you know, quote unquote natural regimen, which is, you know, socioeconomically <laughs> discriminatory as well, right? Because many women cannot afford to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on oh everything some kind of jade eggs and some uh, (laughs) god knows what else yeah Um, like cream mushroom potions and whatever else um so you know yeah to come back to it you know the lack of the jumping to the protective and paternalistic over the prioritizing and valuing of women's lives and women's choices is present in how we treat menopause it is present in how we've treated women I think historically as well yeah yeah and and, mm-hmm. and women need to have their own agency in that you know like yeah. you know you talk about feminine forever which is such an interesting book in my mind you know it's because 
so exhausting, but so, you know, women are also often viewed, you know, pri the priority that, that women are given often is through the male lens. You know, we are to be attractive and sexy and, you know, like, I'm helping you be attractive and sexy and, you know, but like women also would like, you know, like to be attractive and sexy, maybe like, so it's, it's this complicated thing, but, but we need to be able to, you know, to put a bow on what you just said, like make our own informed decisions, but we need that information, which brings us into this vicious circle of now we need to be studied. Like then, then we actually need this research to happen in a real meaningful, true way. Absolutely. Yeah. And in a way that that really takes into account both the subjective experiences of women so that there can be a really full understanding of, you know, all the diverse sort of lifestyle, biological selfhood changes, and also the real kind of clinical research to show like, what is actually happening in the body, what might be happening in the mind, what might be happening in the vasomotor system, you know, that needs I feel to be um, conducted alongside like a real you know valuing of women's voices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a way that's maybe more than just a survey but something that really you know that really is able to take into account the diversity of the experience by listening and by making those sorts of responses really valuable yes and not paying lip service but actually using that information in a way that can and create a better menopause culture a hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's interesting you talk about research in that way. Um, you know, because one of the things that, that started this conversation and, and your book is much about is how women have largely been exempted from studies and trials on the grounds that our hormones fluctuate too much and we're kind of messy for research. Right. So why? <laughs> so you'll never learn anything about us because you're not going to study us. I mean, my mom had a massive heart attack because the doctor gave her nerve pills, you know, when she was having, yes, all these, she's with us, but they almost lost her, you know, and, and I've told this story a bunch of times, but it makes me, there's still, I just probably, I just read a study yesterday that women still get care later in hospitals when they're presenting with symptoms, because it's just, they're just not heard. They're not like that for some reason the, the medical system doesn't look at a woman who has, and I'm talking about my mom smoked most of her life does not exercise if anything's green, she won't touch it. It lives on chocolate and chicken soup. It has been having panic attacks, shoulder pain, neck pain, back pain, all of these things. And, oh, you're just, you know, have some of this and tranquilizes her, literally. And then she has a, a heart attack, a massive heart attack a month later. You know, I, like, it's just insane to me that, that you know, that, yeah, it's a, uh, so so, so you have that, like that, that seems so incredibly basic. And then in, on, on the end of the spectrum that I talk about a lot of this podcast is, is elite and, you know, competition and, and re even our recreational competition performance, you know, mm -hmm. athletic performance and Stacey Sims, who I, I, I co-authored Roar with, you know, talks a lot about like, how has this limited our absolutes? Like, how has this you know, I mean, if nobody has even looked at us, like, how has this limited, who knows what we're capable of if, if we actually understand ourselves, you know, and it's, it's, if we can't even diagnose a sick, a 70 year old woman having a heart attack, you know, my head is going to explode. <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm sorry. So sorry that happened to your mother. That's, I mean, it's, 
you're right. It's just head exploding. It's so infuriating and head exploding. And this business of not seeing women as people, but seeing women as sort of expressions of like feminine kind of exaggeration and embellishment and highly strong, you know, attention seeking. I mean, this stuff. We're just hysterical. We are just hysterical. It sounds so ridiculous that anyone would actually think it. But, you know, there have been these studies, bias studies done. There was one done in March this year in the uh, results published in the Journal of Pain that showed that lay observers recruited of both genders when they were shown clips of of women expressing pain. So through verbal and nonverbal presentations that they almost all of them um, underestimated the extent of of women's pain, perceived that pain to be psychological and recommended the subjects for psychological, psychiatric care rather than analgesic or opioid medication or further physical diagnostic tests. So even I'm though- I'm trying not think, to bang you know, my head on the is, You need to just have something soft to bang your head against <laughs> with this material, honestly, because you do yourself an injury otherwise. It's just constant whiplash. And they won't diagnose what... my concussion. And they won't treat <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They'll sedate you, but they won't look at your concussion. Um, and it's so, it seems so horrible and kind of surely, surely not. Surely not in the year 2021 does anyone just still assume this. But it's so ingrained that these unconscious biases sit, like go over and above individual prejudice. So even if someone, even if a doctor or a healthcare professional wouldn't consider themselves sexist or misogynistic in any way and has no intention to harm, there's still something that kicks in in that particular social situation which is a health professional and a female patient where that sort of hysterical accusation is just in the room so let's take that one step further because you have an amazing chapter in the book on black women and pain you know that that includes that and it's it's well documented that black women as well as latina women enter menopause earlier and experience more severe symptoms there's many hypotheses around that, you know, including like the stressful cultural social situation and stress definitely exacerbates some of these things. Um, But I'd love you to talk a little bit about about some of that history that you found about um, black women not really even being believed to feel pain the same way. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, that was and that's an extraordinarily, I found extraordinarily harrowing part of the research and writing. But I also think it's extraordinarily important to really sort of unpick the roots of, you know, first, why Black women, Latina women, Asian women, Indigenous women have, you know, the intersection of their, their sort of intersectional experience in the healthcare system is just so much worse than than white women's it just mm-hmm. is I mean across mm-hmm. from childbirth to care of chronic illnesses um to the lack of research and I really wanted to sort of unpick why rather than just stating that it's a fact I wanted to right. show why and so in the earlier 19th century uh, when ideas about pain were and sensation were being formulated there was a lot of ideas that came up sorry in the 18th century there are a lot of ideas that came up about the relationship between um civility so being civilized 
and the capacity to feel, the capacity to have feeling and sensibility. And the more civilized you were, read white, wealthy, colonial, the more capable you were deemed to be of finer feeling. So you were more, you know, you were more uh, seen as being more delicate, you know. I need my fainting couch as you speak. You do, you need need the fainting couch, absolutely. So there's some, this kind of theory about having, you know, let's say what it is, white, wealthy people, especially white, wealthy women, having very refined nerves and very delicate sensibilities, which made them more hysterical, but it also meant that their pain was privileged. And they were seen as being capable of all this feeling. So the lower down you were on the, the less civilized you were perceived as being, which really means the more colonized you were, the, the less capable you were perceived to be of feeling, which is horrific. It's a horrific thing to think that this was, this formed the basis of medical treaties on nervous disorders. So it's written into this, you know, this sort of idea of, what used to be called in the earlier 19th century, the savage state. So a savage state of being being that was sort of just less capable of feeling, less capable of thought. And But of course, these sort of ideas are being perpetuated to, to justify colonial abuses, to justify chattel slavery. This is the kind of, this is intentional, you know, all this material was tied up in a kind of supremacy, which enabled white colonizers to justify what they were doing because they were dehumanizing. They were being deliberately dehumanizing. And so from there, there is this belief uh, sort of entrenched into medicine that black women feel less pain, especially when related to childbirth. And in the mid 19th century, well, actually in the earlier part of the 19th century, a gynecologist called James Marion Sims, who has a reputation as being the father of modern gynecology in the US. He um, developed surgical procedures that are still used today. So he innovated surgical procedures for fistula, so vaginal fistula. Um, But he developed these by experimenting on enslaved young women without anesthetic. which is truly harrowing but the reason that he I mean part of the reason that he did this is because of this belief that not only that the these young enslaved women were less than human but in the belief in that their diminished capacity to feel don't you hear them feeling pain yeah I I mean I just that's all I can think is like I mean yeah yeah, like I mean he writes (laughs) there's a book this this particular person who was, you know, lionized with a statue in Central Park until 2018. Ah! <laughs> I'm going to need a drink. It's very early in the morning. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> we should have had, this should have been the cocktail hour, shouldn't it? Yeah, um, anyway. <laughs> um, he, uh, yeah, so he, this person is, he wrote, he had an autobiography, right? So he had his memoirs published posthumously. And it's sadistic, you know, he describes their torment, he describes their agony. But what he doesn't do is describe who they are or their lives or their feelings or they're, they're, these women to him are experimental material, you know, they're specimens, they're objects upon which to perfect uh, surgical procedures that were then performed on white women 
with anaesthetics. So it's a harrowing history. And so the devaluation of, of black women's bodies there written into the very thwarted and very thorny history of gynecology. I, I don't even know what to say. Like, I honestly just, I just honestly don't even know what to say. It's, it's, it's hard to make me speechless, but well done. <laughs> you just, like, I, I just don't even, but I mean, but I think it's so, uh, thank you. I mean, I just thank you, I guess is the only thing I want to say because circling back to my own ignorance when I was young, you know, I'm a 20 something thinking we're equal now, like, you know, whatever. I mean, I just, just not really understanding that the water, you know, the water being you're, you're in an ocean that has been poisoned, you know, from, for centuries that, and you're just swimming in it. It's the water. Right. Um, and it, you have to be able to look at that water and actually know what's in it. And that you, the, a book like yours does that. And it's just hugely important. And, and I, I, I really appreciate you taking your historical eye to this because it's so important and we're still feeling so much of this today. Thank you. I thank you so much for saying that. It really means the world. But it's been, um, I think what you said about, you know, being younger and not ever wanting to, you know, being like, no, we're equal. I think there's there's a denial, right? Because we don't want to feel like our gender is something that's actually holding us back. If we're sort of empowered women, you know, I grew up, my mother was a real kind of second wave feminist. You know, she brought me up on her own. There was never a question of like, I was kind of diminished. So I similarly, for a lot of my kind of younger life was like, no, you know, wouldn't kind of bow to that sort of idea. But then when you come into your consciousness and realize how much of it is, is absolutely shaping not only every, any, everything you do, but systems of knowledge, systems of power, your choices, and even, you know, what, is known about or what you can do with your own body. Hmm. And I think coming, you know, coming into consciousness, it can be, it, it's infuriating, sure, but I'm, I'm so pleased that now we are in, it seems like this generation is wanting to kind of unfold and really reveal and really get to the meat of these histories and really expose and, and help sort of, you know, clear that poisoned ocean that we're swimming in. Yeah, and this, I, I, I love the, you know, the intensity with which histories, like the histories of gynecology don't remain hidden anymore. You know, they don't remain hidden behind this, you know, um, we defer to this image of this genius white man. You know, this is being, at least a little bit, is beginning to be dismantled. What's behind it? You know, what's that, what are behind these kind of stories we're told, these histories we're told, these people we're told to revere? So yeah, it feels like although it is there's kind of so much to care about and be angry about, I also I have a lot of hope for younger women that they're coming, that they're pre prepared to know, they need to know, and they want to know. Yeah, I, I and I wanted to I wanted to definitely end this on a note of of action, you know, because I think that that that's important. I think knowledge is super important. Um, but I think action is more important, you know, and, and for obvious reasons. So in your mind, let's talk about ways that, that we can advocate for ourselves, affect change, 
present this knowledge and and then do something with it. I mean, I am hopeful because I see so many more women in the medical field, right? And when I talk to them, you know, I I, I, I I've had a few on the podcast that I saw like eyes open and go and they realized the ocean they were in and they hadn't even thought about the ocean. I'm like, oh, another sister doesn't know the ocean. And but but then she goes and she's like, I'm going to change some stuff. And, you know, and and they're in places to affect that change. So, you know, what in your mind, like what are the best ways that women can uh, besides reading your book, read Unwell Women? It's amazing um but then like where do we go with where where do we go with that like you know you're in that medical system like what do you what do you see what do you think i think that one of the most important things although we shouldn't although we need change to come from within as well from within the system itself with funding with research with shifts in research priorities we also need so much change comes about when we learn how to advocate for ourselves and advocate for the kind of care that we deserve. And this can be really difficult for many reasons. You know, we internalize uh, these ideas about how women should behave and how women should accept what they're told. But really, I think answers come and, and what we deserve comes when we refuse to accept what we're told and we advocate for ourselves. And you can advocate for others, I think, by dismantling cultures of shame that are also we also internalize around our bodies and our body processes um we have there are so many avenues now where we can share what is happening to our bodies what the reality of living with in our bodies is or we can celebrate that and I think the more you realize that we're all trying to do this and we're all looking for a way to speak up I think that speaking up for yourself is intensely brave as a woman in in this culture, in our culture. I think it's a really profound act. And if you can do that, you can find a way to advocate for yourself. If you find it difficult to speak up in something like a doctor's office and but you've say been experiencing pain and other symptoms for a while, it can really help to have a symptoms diary. You know, you, you maybe you want to write it down. Maybe you can take a trusted friend who has been, you know, who's seen you through this journey, who might be able to advocate for you. You know, there, I think advocacy and refusing to be silenced is important. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's not as easy as it, it sounds isn't. just to be listened to. It's not. But taking one little step, I think, yeah. is, is, is all the difference. So to share just a little story that is just, it's a tiny step, but it is profound. I, I, I had been hearing from women that they were avoiding even going to, to doctor's offices or, or engaging in really unhealthy habits prior to going to doctor's offices because of the scale, because they didn't want to step on the scale in, in, as, you, as one has to do or is told to do. And, you know, I had a history of eating disorders. And as an athlete, I'd weighed myself every day for like five years and I was over it. And I was just like, you know, one day when I was like, I don't, I don't, they'd ask me to step on, like, I'm not, I'm not stepping on the scale. I can tell you about what I weigh. You can look at me and tell, you know, and she looked at me. <laughs> no, like, no one has done that before. I'm like, I'm like, what do you, what does that tell you? I'm like, I, you can t- sell year from year if there's a drastic weight change in me, right? Like that, you, that's obvious, you know? And uh, I'm like, you can write down, make a guess. And she's I'm like, I'm not, that's not healthy for my mind. And she was like, 
cool. And I, and, and I would bet like she looked at me like maybe I'm going to start doing that, <laughs> you know, like and but it's so empowering, you know, and, and that like taking that little step has empowered me to just be like, you are not my God. You are not my like you're my dog. You're a doc. Like I'm paying you. And yes, I want good care, but I have all the agency I want in here. I can walk out that door and find another doctor. And like when when you realize that, like it's the world becomes a lot larger and a lot more uh, you just it's empowering. That's incredible. I think you're totally right. Doing something like that where you assert that your body is your own and where you also, you know, call out the, not only the potentially harmful nature of, you know, making you, forcing you to step on a scale, but also the useful, what use is it? You know, it's such a, it's such an incredibly empowering thing to, to stay in that doctor's office at that moment. Like, what are you going to learn from that? <laughs> you're going to put me through something distressing then you're going to not learn anything. Exactly. It's, so it's, it's like that you, you, you're right. You just, you take away that little, little bit of control, a little bit of perceived control that ex, that is being asserted over you in that room. And then maybe next time you, there'll be a little bit more that you can do to explain the kind of care you need. You are the most important in that room. You're the most important narrator of what's happening in your own body and what's happening in your own mind. And, you know, the boundaries that we're always told to set as women now in our kind of social work lives, our work lives, apply to our body lives as well and the way that we treat them, you know? Yep, exactly. I cannot thank you enough. I, I, <laughs> I've, I could, I love this conversation. I could talk to you uh, all day. I. I've loved it. I've really, really loved it. It's been just so fantastic and I'm so appreciative of your like deep reading and attention to the book it just it's, made for such a wonderful conversation I I, I just really love talking to you it, thank you it, it was it was very very well deserved you, you put a lot of work into it I know what goes thank into you. writing a book so how long did it take you to write it do you know what it, I wrote it in 10 months it was fast but I that did, the proposal was long. I, I had a proposal that was nearly 30,000 words. So I had, I had a you lot did all the of work. meat. Mm-hmm. I did have a lot of meat on those chapters. And luckily, um, my editor in the UK and then my editor, Myron, in US, they were really happy with what I had. So, of course, there were changes and it, it, did, it did sort of shift and expand. But there was a lot of meat already on the bones of it. So, yeah, a lot of research before and planning, a lot of structural planning and then wrote it in 10 months I just wrote it over the lockdowns oh this yeah that's a great <laughs> they use of basically lockdown. <laughs> wrote it over the lockdowns wrote and well, congratulations lockdown. <laughs> yeah congratulations <laughs> thank you that is uh we'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can yeah. click it hit play not pause is proud to be sponsored by noon hydration in 2021 I have been a huge fan of noon for well over a decade They have products for immunity, recovery, getting a good night's rest, and I absolutely swear by their Podium series, which include branched-chain amino acids that are super important for women during and after menopause. So show your support and head over to NoonLife.com, that's Noon, N-U-U-N, Life, one word, and use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, again, one word, with a capital F and a capital M, 
for 30%, yes, 30% off of all of Noon's amazing products. Again, NoonLife.com, use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE with a capital F and a capital M and get 30% off of anything you want. Check it out. Well, that's our show. You are definitely going to want to come back and join me next week when I sit down with none other than Dr. Jen Gunter, an OBGYN and pain medicine physician and author of The Menopause Manifesto, which is out now and making waves. She is one of the feistiest docs I know. You will not want to miss this one. So until next week, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.